I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Now, most Americans have never heard of a character called Bojo, but in Western Europe, and especially in the United Kingdom, everybody knows Boris Johnson, or Bojo, is the new, remarkably Trump-like British Prime Minister. He acceded to the Prime Minister's residence and offices at 10 Downing Street in London in July after the failure of Theresa May to solve the terrible trauma and total mess called Brexit. Upon becoming prime minister, he shocked the world by suspending parliament until just before the October 31st deadline for when the UK is scheduled to crash out of the European Union, embarking on a frighteningly virgin territory which likely portends major economic and possibly political disaster for the United Kingdom all because of a 2016 vote to leave the EU, which was as unpredicted and as shocking there as the election of Donald Trump was here. So now Conservative Party hard-exit Brexiter Boris Johnson is in the driver's seat, and there may be no guardrails to prevent a serious and very painful crash. Our guest today is Kenneth Surin, Professor Emeritus of Literature and Professor of Religion and Critical Theory at Duke University. Thanks for being with us. Um, delighted to be on your show. Well, uh, Ken Surin trained initially as an analytical philosopher. His teaching areas include Anglophone literatures outside England, philosophy, critical theory, Marxism, state theory, and international political economy. His works appear on Counterpunch and other news outlets. He paints a clear picture of what faces the people of the UK in two recent articles, Boris Johnson's Brexit Helter Skelter, And after he shockingly called for suspension of Parliament, a second article titled Bojo Johnson's Latest Scurvy Trick. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Professor Surin. Today, to say he is controversial is a major understatement. Who is Boris Johnson? He does seem to share a lot of Trump's attributes, such as wild hair, allegations of corruption, overt racism, and disregard for the traditions of democracy. Many people hoped and assumed he would never become prime minister. You write that Boris Johnson has long had a reputation for seedy opportunism and rampant dishonesty. Boy, who does that remind me of? I understand that, like Trump, loyalty to him is key. So who is this Bojo, and how did he get to the highest office in the land? Uh, Well, to do that, I think something has to be said um, about the uh, way the elite, uh, or the establishment, as it's called, uh, in the UK, um, gets to constitute itself. Um, He went to what, in American terms, would be an elite prep school, uh, Eton, that is. Um, I think 22 
uh, of the 55 prime ministers that Britain has had uh, have been alums of Eton. And then from there, he went to Oxford. Now, there are two Oxfords in, in, uh, uh, in real life. Um, one is the elite university that ranks with the Ivy League um, um, universities in this country. And the other is basically a finishing school uh, for the moneyed elite. Uh-huh. So um, Johnson didn't go there as um, uh, a scholar, really. Um, he went there more for the finishing school aspect of Oxford. <laughs> um, he joined an elite drinking club called the Bullingdon, uh, which also had the former Prime Minister David Cameron as a member. Um, And the social life of Oxford, I think, um, had a priority for him. And then, of course, the other thing that happens at an elite university like that, it's the same over here, is you form uh, networks. Uh And um, because of the... uh, uh, the connections that he formed, he easily slid into uh, a job as a journalist uh, at one of uh, uh, two of the um, at the top uh, newspapers. And then, as in this country, um, but perhaps even more so, because um, another key conservative, uh, Michael Gove, is also a journalist. Uh, being a journalist at a top university in addition to being a lawyer or being um, a a stockbroker, is a good way to enter conservative politics. So um, he did that. He had an unremarkable political career, to say the least. He had two top jobs. One is mayor of London. His main accomplishment there was to build the taxpayer for a number of... um, vanity projects, because that's the only way to describe them, which did Mm. not work. And then he became foreign secretary. And I think the consensus there uh, is that even though he was the foreign secretary for a very short time, he managed to make himself the the most incompetent foreign secretary in modern British history. Um, And well, he's extremely opportunistic. Uh, he's ruthless. Um, he shares certain characteristics with the uh, other po- American politician that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he's done is simply find, uh, if you like, uh, alleyways, uh, metaphorical, of course, mm-hmm. uh, alleyways, tunnels, etc., to burrow himself into the top echelons of power, and this is what he's managed to do. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm sure there are people who are hoping his stay as prime minister at 10 Downing Street is uh, short, like his uh, service as uh, foreign secretary. Uh, (laughs) Well, it could be even shorter if an election is held fairly soon and he loses it. Um, I think he's on track to become the shortest-serving prime minister ever in British history, and that's about 250 years. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, Trump and Bojo have put forward the prospect of a new UK-US trade deal, which would, at least in theory, offset the loss of trade with the EU after Brexit is accomplished. How realistic is that? And please tell us about what is behind such talk. 
Well, what's behind it is really uh, the attempt made by Bojo, but not just him, the other hardcore Brexiteers at the top of the Conservative Party, who want an American-style economic system in the UK. That is one that is deregulated, where workers have fewer rights, where the social safety net um, is minimal, and where social spending, of course, is cut to the bone. So America is an exemplar for these people. Um, At the same time, uh, Trump perceives most of Europe as being socialist. Well, of course, anybody to the left of him is a socialist. Uh, But um, people like Angela Merkel... um, and uh, Macron in France, no. and a few other, and of course the Scandinavians, wow. um, are regarded by him as socialists. So anything that he can do to weaken that socialist political setup, ah. um, and the one way to do this, of course, is to pry the United Kingdom away from it, uh, will be a feather in Trump's cap, and it might give him something more in the way of not just trade deals for the U.S., Look, when Trump looks for a trade deal for the U.S., he's also looking for a deal for himself. Oh, absolutely. um, That could be something that could be in prospect. (laughs) It does seem logical with everything else. I mean, I, I, I don't think he understands that the presidency is not about enriching yourself. I think that's what he's there for. But hey, what do I know? I've been, I've been wrong a lot. Now, John Bolton is uh, one of Trump's favorite people. Uh, he has a uh, a job in the uh, in the White House now. Something about foreign policy. I'm not sure what exactly what his title is. I think he's Trump's national security. Oh, advisor. probably so. He's kind of a wacko himself, and he said so he, his own staff call him Bonkers Bolton. By the way, <laughs> understand his own staff. Well. Bolton said once it leaves the EU on 31 October, it won't be bound by the requirement to seek common foreign security policy with the European European Union. Well, that's interesting. I mean, we have these traditional uh, security alliances. So it sounds like that jibes with what you were saying about uh, wanting to uh, weaken the EU. Well, yes. The neoconservative um, element in U.S. politics, um, or maybe more precisely uh, the nationalistic variant of it, um, represented by people like Bannon and Bolton, um, clearly perceive the European security setup that has prevailed since the Second World War uh, to be to be outdated um, and to be a burden to the United States. So um, anything that can be done to uh, undermine uh, that social security setup wow. is precisely the objective of. Um, someone like Bolton. And, of course, Russia was a big part of the success of the Brexit vote. What? what ah, mi- well, yes. What might, know, might be in it for them? I, I don't buy into these, concerns, uh, these conspiracy theories right. um, about uh, outright and profound collusion between uh, Trump and uh, the people around him and the Russians. But there is a pretty strong, how shall we put it, um, if not collusion, 
at least uh, a convergence or coordination of certain outcomes. Like it was here. Um, and here there is a convergence uh, between what uh, people like Bolton and Trump want and what the Soviet Union... I mean, sorry, right. I'm going back to Cold War terms because age, in yeah. some ways uh, the security setup uh, in Western Europe was designed yeah. uh, as... Um, a key aspect of the Cold War. Right. Uh, but Russia uh, under Putin has uh, a deep interest in weakening that setup, and so it, it would seem do Bolton and Trump. And, 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 you know, there was this thing called the great game of competition between the, between, uh, the U.K. And, and Russia for a long time relative to uh, Asia and places like that. And they've always been in competition. Now, why, why did a, a slim majority vote for Brexit? It was a big surprise. Was it, in, in your view, was it primarily racism and anti-immigrant sentiments, or were there real substantive complaints with membership in the EU relative to Britain's economic interests? I think there has to be... Uh couple of things said in response uh, to the very good question that you've just posed. Now, the first has to do with the mechanism of a referendum itself. Britain, unlike, say, California in this country, has no tradition of referenda. Ah. Um, so, in fact, only one was held before, in 1975, uh, about... Uh, Britain's continued membership of what was then the European Economic Community. Uh, that didn't have the outcome, quite the same outcome uh, that took place here, because there was widespread uh, a widespread consensus amongst uh, the main political parties, or at least uh, the uh, the leadership of the main political parties, uh, that. EU, uh, that EEC membership was something desirable. We must remember that even Mrs. Thatcher, early in her career, uh, was an enthusiast for um, membership of the EEC, at that, as it then was, and the EU later. Uh, she soured on it, but uh, um, she was a, a fan to begin with. Mm. So this time it was fairly clear that the context had shifted uh, since the one that prevailed in 1975. Uh, first of all, there was not quite the same degree of consensus amongst the, uh, uh, the main political parties. Uh, both parties, and I include Labour here mm -hmm. in that both, um, have very significant factions within them who are Eurosceptic. Now, the second thing, of course, is that the referendum came uh, six years after the Conservative Party started imposing austerity. Ah. And what happens with a referendum, of course, you vote on the basis of a question that is asked, mm -hmm. uh, do we continue or do we leave? But people bring their own agendas, right. which really... Uh, in many cases, have very little to do um, mm. with the EU. Mm. One of these uh, is frustration at uh, uh, austerity, but not just austerity, because going back to Mrs. Thatcher, 
there's been a widening gulf between Britain's uh, 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 richer segment of the population mm-hmm. and the so-called left behinds. Um, and the left behinds uh, who are in the main um, not the most highly educated um, do blue-collar jobs, right. and of course remuneration for blue-collar jobs in the UK, as in the US, yeah. um, has fallen behind pay uh, for other professions uh, and forms of employment. Sure. So there's, for, there was frustration at that. There was anti-immigrant uh, sentiment, and this, of course, was stoked up by people like Nigel Farage, mm. uh, who is even further to the right um, on immigration uh, and xenophobia than Boris Johnson is. So uh, anti-immigrant sentiment, uh, widespread frustration at being left behind, um, and people in these Rust Belt areas uh, were seeing themselves doing less well than their pa- uh, than their parents' generation. Yeah. And, of course, the expectation every time is, well, you do just a little bit better than the preceding generation. But this was not the case. This has not been the case since yeah. Mrs. Thatcher. So a whole array of considerations mm-hmm. fused together um, to deliver... Uh, if you like, um, a pissed-off constituency of voters who basically said uh, throw, said the British equivalent of uh, the American expression, let's throw out the bums. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. that, I think, is primarily what happened. So just kind of an instinct there, and, and people didn't expect it to really happen, like the election of Trump wasn't expected here. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Professor Kenneth Surin. Uh, we're talking about Brexit. What is going on? Who is this bojo in particular, Boris Johnson? And I j- just, I wonder about the left, and the Labor Party was kind of, Clintonized uh, many years ago, but it's back as being a real left party. And I wonder what their position was relative to what you describe as within the EU, the real decision-making power being with the unelected commission, the much-scorned Eurocrats. So I wonder if the left also uh, weighed in in favor of uh, the Brexit vote in 2016. There is, uh, on the left in Britain, um, a core of support for a position known as Lexit, uh, which, of course, would require uh, a divorce from the EU. Uh, But really, uh, the attempt in a Lexit would be to scale back uh, the neoliberal inroads represented by the EU. We must not forget that the EU... Uh, is an outfit that's there to promote neoliberalism and globalization. Yes. Um, And so the left, of course, everywhere in Europe is dissatisfied with the priority that the EU gives to furthering the causes of globalization and neoliberalism. So, but of course, you see, the problem for someone in favor of a Lexit like this 
And I must say, uh, I've been a lexiteer since I was a teenager in Britain, is that the uh, let's leave the EU movement has been taken over by the right wing, um, who, of course, are doing it um, for reasons to do uh, with um, a kind of misplaced nostalgia for Britain's imperial glory, which is never going to return. But the good old days and all that kind of thing is the kind of rhetoric that's being used by people like Nigel Farage. Um, And then, of course, anti-immigrant sentiment and xenophobia. Now, if these impulses are driving uh, Brexit, then a lexiteer like me um, has really got to be extremely careful about throwing your lot in with um, with people who, in yeah. many cases, uh, at their most extreme, yeah. are neo-Nazis. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no other way of putting it. Right. So, here is in a very uncomfortable position. And... Uh, well, what... Had to, what is Lexit? Could you just uh, briefly define what that is? Is something a term not pe- most people are not familiar with? Lexit. What is that? Uh, Lexit represents the position upheld by Jeremy Corbyn now and a great British uh, socialist politician, the late Tony Benn, uh-huh. and uh, the idea was that you would never have a fully fledged socialism as long as Britain belonged to the EU. Ah. Uh, the reason being, of course, uh, is that um, the EU had uh, curbs on um, workers' rights. Now, these are not the horrible ones that the Republicans in, these, uh, in this country stand for. Um, but trade union activity has to be organized in a certain kind of way, uh, there is a bureaucratic procedure uh, for um, uh, employers pushing back against strikes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So they, uh, people like Tony Benn mm-hmm. um, and Jeremy Corbyn, um, believe that the EU is there to push a pro-corporate agenda right. um, and that socialism in a fully-fledged form, could never be implemented in Britain uh, as long as this corporatist outlook uh, was the one that was dominant in British politics. And so that's, in essence, what a Lexit is. Interesting. And I wonder how much power they may have now. And, uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn has been around for a while. People have spoken him as, as uh, the UK's Bernie Sanders. Uh, and and we talked... To the left of Sanders, by the way. Well, I would actually assume so. A lot, I mean, people have no idea how traditional Bernie Sanders really is. I mean, quite frankly, his domestic policy is pretty much the same as no, Dwight he, Eisenhower. He's an old-fashioned European social democrat. Right. So, well, let's get to uh, Jeremy Corbyn a little bit later for now. I just wonder if, did, did, was there a vision of a significantly better world offered by Brexit? What was that vision, if there was the vision of a better world, that if, you know, the, the UK leaves uh, the uh, constraints of the EU? Well, 
vision of the better of a better world uh, in the context of UK politics is two pronged. A better world for people like Corbyn and members of the Labour Party like myself is, of course, a world that is socialist. Now, a better world, unfortunately, for right wingers in British politics is a world where Britain can wallow again uh, in its imperial greatness. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a world where English culture, British culture, um, and of course the slip of the tongue on my part was not inadvertent because uh, English culture is hegemonic in the right. mindset that I'm about to describe, okay. which is that of a more homogeneous uh less multicultural um more deferential uh united kingdom so th- that represents uh it's really a fantasy uh the fantasy's better world for this um right wing segment of the british population it's very different from the socialist vision of a better united kingdom uh, that socialists have. Wow. And uh, there's always been, uh, certainly I- I- in the UK, uh, a-, a long tradition of left, which has ebbed and, uh, and uh, expanded in, in strength over the years. I mean, through the, uh, the uh, Labour Party has changed, but there's always been a real left and, and the right wing, uh, unlike here, where it's pretty much this, you know, the the far right and the not so far right. That's pretty much how it is here. Uh, and people, you know, again think uh, uh, Bernie Sanders is socialist, and that's scary, like you know, Stalinist or something like that. But uh, it, it, the, there's a split now within the Tories, within the Conservative Party, thanks to Bojo, uh, which is some people have started calling like a civil war kind of thing going on. What what do we know about that? I mean, it seems to change by the minute. Well, it changes by the minute. Um, and on Tuesday, uh, when Parliament reconvened after its summer recess, on Tuesday, a member of the Conservative Party in Parliament defected to the Liberal Democrats. Wow. So, uh, we don't know by how it's virtue concerned. of that, Boris Johnson has lost his working majority oh, in Parliament. <laughs> And really, uh, what Johnson has done, I think, is to overreact to uh. the situation that his predecessor, Theresa May, found herself in all the time. Mm. Now, Theresa May is basically a party hack. So what she tried to do right from the beginning, uh, when she uh, assumed office, was to make certain that both Brexiters uh, and Remainers were equally represented in all circles within, official circles within her party. Hmm. So she tried to keep her own cabinet, for example, equally divided between the two groupings. But of course, this did not work for, uh, for the simple reason that if a proposal came up and it was perceived by the one side uh, to be uh, too pro-European, the other side shot it down. 
And on the other hand, if a proposal came up that was perceived to be um, too jingoistic, xenophobic, uh, too anti-immigrant, because let's face it, the business element in the Conservative Party likes immigration. Uh, It gets its low-paid workers that way. So there, there was just no possibility of her cabinet working together. Bojo thought he had to bite a bullet and basically flushed out that cabinet and stuffed it uh, with his own diehard Brexiteer supporters. Hmm. So what this meant, of course, is that the Remainers, who at least had a place in the tent, uh, now found themselves outside it. And Bojo is an extremely strident character. Uh, he exudes machismo, and he did. He he he's done more to antagonise the remainers who have already been exiled uh, outside the tent by doing such things as saying that the uh, the whip in the House of Commons will be taken away from them. Now, in terms of uh, parliamentary protocol, what that means is. Um, their votes will no longer, their parliamentary votes will no longer be seen as representing the point of view of the Conservative Party. And this has made some people, uh, like the former finance minister, Philip Hammond, who has been um, in the Conservative Party for 45 years, extremely furious. And he said that he he will go to the courts if Bojo attempts to do anything like this. So um, he's made it extremely clear that the only place for someone who is pro-EU in today's Conservative Party is on its margins or else outside. Wow. Uh, Very, very interesting. Now, uh, again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort, folks. We need you. And our guest today is Kenneth Surin, Professor Emeritus of Literature and Professor of Religion and Critical Theory at Duke University. Uh, And he's written a couple articles on Counterpunch, Boris Johnson's Brexit Helter Skelter, and Bojo Johnson's latest scurvy trick. Well, in late, talk about scurvy tricks. In late August, Bojo stunned the world with his suspension of Parliament as a way to ram through a no-deal Brexit. He had to get approval from the Queen. Now, being an American, I was surprised the Queen did approve. I didn't expect that. Why did she approve? Uh, Of course, all of this is in the misty uh, vapors of English tradition. Um, the move to suspend Parliament was made via what's called the Privy Council, which had much more power in days of yore than it has today. It's it's basically uh, an advisory council to the Queen, drawn from more senior members of uh, of Parliament. So, of course, the Conservatives have a majority on that because uh, every time a party comes into power, it it, uh, appoints a fresh round of privy councillors. So 
using that mechanism, now the queen is meant to heed the advice. That's not quite the precise term, but mm. it, it represents what this amounts to. Yeah. To heed the, avi- the advice uh, put forward to her by the Privy Council, uh. Uh, or to, to, uh, to heed any request put forward to her by the Privy Council. So some people have said that she had no choice. Right. Um, basically, since uh, she is simply there uh, to act on advice, she had no choice. Other people have said, well, if she had really uh, had more spinal fortitude, what she could have done is to say she would have wanted a full discussion um, mm. with the Privy Council um, meeting en masse as opposed to having just a couple of emissaries from it uh, sent by Bojo to a holiday uh, retreat, Balmoral Castle. Um, But anyway, uh, the flummery that's integral to British tradition um, just got this this past. And and she is head of state, not head of government. So there is, you know, some separation there i believe so she's not yes yes there is there is that separation um some of it is murky Uh britain does not have an official uh, constitution of course Hmm. it's an informal constitution so people uh and this has been going on since time immemorial um in an informal system you can bend things this way and that Uh um without actually appearing to violate um, uh-huh. the spirit of the Constitution. Well, so she... It's, uh, it's a very loose bag of tricks. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, she did do it. it. It has been approved. Now, those of us who have tried to follow the confusion that is Brexit have heard something about an Irish backstop. What is that, and how does that play into whether Brexit happens or not? Under the terms of the Good Friday Peace Agreement uh, between uh, Ireland, that is the Republic of Ireland, and the North of Ireland, which is a part, or Ulster to use its other name, uh, which is a part of the United Kingdom, um, under the terms of that peace agreement, there would be no hard border between the North and the South. Um, So basically... Uh, uh, there would be free passage, free trade, etc., across the border. Now, the stumbling block, once uh, Brexit comes into effect, um, is this, that the Republic of Ireland in the South is a member of the EU. So if post-Brexit UK in this case also including the north of Ireland, Mm -hmm. is not a member of the EU, if there is still a flexible border between the north and the south, uh, the United Kingdom will de facto share many trading and legal uh, and organizational agreements with the EU itself simply in order to facilitate the existence of this flexible border between the North and the South of Ireland. 
So the, the Republic of Ireland has insisted, because it wants the Good Friday peace agreement uh, uh, to not be undermined, sure. has insisted that this flexible border exist. Now, since the Republic of Ireland is a member of the EU, all the remaining EU countries have backed the Republic of Ireland in its stance that there has to be a flexible border. Uh, and, of course, the diehards uh, among uh, the, the Brexiters will say that as long as there's this flexible border, the UK will be uh, having a bino, Brexit in name only. Uh, no. So the hardliners are insisting um, on the abolition of the backstop, meaning the imposition of a hard border between the North and the South. Wow. The EU, in uh, Brussels, that is, mm -hmm. has insisted that there's no way that it'll budge on this issue. I bet. Bojo is pretending, or he has deluded himself, <laughs> and the British public as well, or that section of it which supports him, uh, that he can somehow persuade the EU uh, to, if you like, have something that is between a flexible and an inflexible border. Um, he's going to get nowhere on this, um, and this actually be the main reason why uh, the only option that faces him realistically is a no-deal Brexit. Wow. He's not going to deal the. He's not going to get any deal with the EU. That includes a hard border between the north and the south of Ireland. Boy, he boxed himself in. Now, what about Scotland? Scot they voted overwhelmingly for Remain to stay in the EU and do not Brexit. Does this revitalize the independence movement there, do you think? It has uh, not just, as you, you said, revitalized the independence movement, but the other thing that it's done is we must remember uh, that the Conservative Party underwent something of a revival just after the independence referendum in Scotland. And in fact, there are 13 Conservative MPs in Scotland. Now, there is a fear in Conservative circles uh, that that uh, cohort of Scottish Conservative MPs will be wiped out in a general election or at least trimmed down from 30 to just four or five. And if that's the case, the Conservative Party overall will find it extremely difficult to remain in power after that general election. Hmm. That's interesting. It's already clinging on by its fingernails. <laughs> oh, boy, it sure is interesting, as they said in Alice in Wonderland, curiouser and curiouser. Now, yes. is, is Parliament now powerless to do anything? Can they overturn the prorogation? Uh, is the timetable cast in stone? And you refer to something called Standing Order 24. Tell us about that, please. Well, uh, as of Tuesday, um, there was a brief debate about Standing Order 24, and Standing Order 24 was accepted. Okay, what's the basis for Standing Order 24? The, the parliamentary business, timetabling, 
the determination of its agenda, etc., is usually in the hands of the government. Now, there is an exception to this. Mm-hmm. So in other words, it's the government that, that determines the timetable uh, for parliamentary activity. There is an exception to this, and it's called Standing Order 24, which is the standing order that enables uh, MPs to ask for an emergency debate uh, and for room to be made uh, in the parliamentary schedule for that debate. So what uh, what Standing Order 24 does is to pave the way in the parliamentary schedule for a discussion of a bill that will ask the EU for the deadline of uh, Halloween yep. uh, in October, October 31st, right. that deadline to be pushed back um, in time hmm. either for a general election to take place uh-huh. or for some uh, alternative to a no-deal Brexit to be worked out with the EU. And there have been so many extensions. And that, that discussion will take place on Wednesday. Uh-huh. The, the discussion of that bill. I see. Uh, well, can they, can they go for yet another extension? I mean, how is that going to go over with, the, with the, the EU in Brussels? I think the EU is in the position of um, saying amongst itself, but it's clearly signaling this to the UK as well. Look, at all costs, we must avoid a scenario in which we uh, are blamed for any Brexit disaster, no uh-huh. deal Brexit disaster that befalls uh, um, the UK. You can see Bojo already lining things up so that if um, uh, if things go completely haywire, he can lay the blame at the uncooperative, inflexible uh, EU. Now, the EU wants to avoid that scenario, so it will do everything uh, that it can to appear conciliatory, accommodating, Mm. etc., etc. And that, of course, the first step in that is to give the UK as much time to hang itself without (laughs) blaming Brussels. It is uh, interesting, confusing. Can there be a no-confidence vote? And, and what happens if Bojo loses that? Is that something that is possible? A no-confidence vote uh, is possible. Um, Doesn't sound likely. Well, uh, the thing is... Um, The no-confidence vote will have to be called by the opposition. And what the opposition wants to do is to be fairly confident that it can win this vote. Okay? Because if it loses Uh, this vote to Johnson, um, this will appear to uh, um, Joe Schmo in the streets as well they tried they tried to take Johnson down uh, he survived it um, and now the opposition is on the back foot 
So it doesn't want to be perceived to be on the back foot. It'll only call a no-confidence vote if uh, it's fairly certain that it can win this. Mm. Win, win this vote. And at this point, that doesn't seem likely. The numbers just don't look like that, right? Well, unless you have a lot of... I think a few variables have to fall into place uh, before we have such a thing as a no-confidence right. vote. Uh, the first thing that has to happen, I think, is, and this is very much in the way of signals being received, uh, it has to look uh, very likely that Johnson is now at the edge of the cliff on a no deal, uh-huh. on a no deal crash out. Uh-huh. Um, the, it, there is not that perception as yet. Um, no. uh, we're not getting any signals that Johnson has reached the edge of the cliff. So I think we can rule out for, but who knows what can happen overnight. Uh-huh. Uh, but for now, uh, the short term foreseeable future, I think we can we can say there won't be a no-confidence vote because there are other preferable alternatives ah. for those who oppose Johnson. People who know Preferable alternatives for them to take. People who know that system a heck of a lot better than I do over here on this side of the Atlantic. Now, the Labor Party's Jeremy Corbyn, who's been mentioned before, has, been, has long been an important voice on the left. I believe he—I'm not sure about this, but I believe he unenthusiastically— did support the Brexit vote in 2016. What is his role now? What is he saying? How likely or possible is it that Jeremy Corbyn could become prime minister? I think it gets more likely uh, as the days go by and as Johnson, uh, either through uh, his overconfidence, uh, his need to... uh, project a constant front of bravado uh, over overreaches himself and um, he can't stop doing that um, uh, that's who he is so it gets more and more likely that Corbyn um, will be the next prime minister but several several contingencies have to fall into place before that happens um, the first, of course, is that you can only become prime minister uh, by uh, by two ways. Um, one is by a general election, um, which Labour wins, and then he automatically becomes prime minister, unless he steps down from the leadership of the Labour Party. And the other is that Boris Johnson resigns as leader of the Conservative Party, but general, but does not call a general election, and and uh, British procedure then requires the Queen to invite the leader of the opposition, ah. Corbyn in this case, to form a new government, and there doesn't need to be an election in this case. Whoa, I can't imagine the Queen wanting to do that, but <laughs> I guess she will have no alternative. Right, right. Protocol decrees that. If the leader of the party in power resigns then the leader of the without opposition. calling a general election, uh, that the uh, uh, that the queen invites the leader of the opposition. Wow. 
former government. Well, what about this other character, Nigel Farage? Who is he and what is his current role in this bizarre play? What are the prospects for his Brexit party, which is to the right of the Tories, the Conservative Party, and they're, I understand, more overtly racist and far to the right? What about Nigel Farage? Well, your description is absolutely correct. Um, he, uh, he goes as close as you can to being an overt racist. Um, but of course, you know, there are many of us would say, uh, well, if you're just short of being an overt racist, I think that makes you pretty much a racist yourself. I'd say so. Uh, so, you know, Farage is really one of the is, uh, um, opportunistic um, slicksters, um, um, snake oil salesman. You can use a whole <laughs> thesaurus to describe him. Right. His Brexit party, he was, he started something called, well, no, he was head of the UKIP, uh, the United oh, right. Kingdom Independence Party before that. Oh, yeah. He's now formed his own Potemkin party called the Brexit Party. It's a single-issue party. It doesn't have an agenda for anything but Brexit. It doesn't even have any policies. It basically goes by what Nigel Farage says uh, is the policy uh, for this week or for next week. Um, but the thing is, and this is the hold that he has on Boris Johnson. If Boris Johnson gives the impression, uh, as Theresa May did, that he is tepid uh -huh. um, or not whole-blooded about Brexit, the right wing of voters in the Conservative Party will say, well, you know, um, uh, Nigel Farage has more spinal fortitude on uh -huh. Brexit than Boris Johnson has, and therefore we're going to vote for Brexit. Oof. A full-blooded Brexit, which means we vote Farage. Mm. In that case, the Conservative Party, meaning Johnson's party, will almost certainly lose the election. Mm -hmm. huh. So what Boris Johnson is doing two things. Um... One is obviously conducting stuff with the EU, but the other has to do with internal British politics, which is to shore up his, uh, his base and to ensure that he doesn't hemorrhage any votes come in the general election um, to the party on the right of him, namely the Brexit right. Party. And it does seem that a lot of uh, uh, Tory MPs are kind of squirming around. They're not in a comfortable position. Squirming around because not uh, quite a number of them, several dozen of them, in fact, uh, have majorities in uh, the low thousands or even less than a thousand. Um, so any lurch to, uh, towards Farage on the part of these conservative voters will put their seats in jeopardy. Yeah. Now, I know... It, it, some people think there's still a middle ground here in America. I don't think so. I, I just don't see it. What about in the UK? Is there a middle ground, or has that been withered away? There is no middle ground. Um, it's it's um, it's been truncated 
for reasons that parallel some of the reasons that exist in the UK, um, you know, uh, in the US. One, of course, is uh, the emergence of populism. Um, populism makes it very difficult for uh, a middle ground to exist mm -hmm. um, because populism, the middle ground, it's always somewhat uh, post-ideological uh, or non-ideological, uh, whereas, of course, populism is rampantly ideological. Uh, so that's been one reason. Uh, and the other reason, of course, is the weakening of the um, liberal democratic institutions uh, that has happened in the U.S. It's happened in the U.K. And there could be a couple of reasons which would take some time to go into. Um, but basically, that middle ground uh, has all but vanished. And... All right. Um, and, and one of the you also mentioned that one of the things that the that the Tories have done is uh, having loosened the austerity noose in recent weeks, they've had a series of opportunely timed announcement on new spending. I wonder. I mean, that seems fairly blatantly politically timed. Uh, how are people buying that, do you think? Because they you know, they had the austerity program and now they're investing more in the common good. Um. I think people are skeptical about it. Um, of course, the other thing uh, that has gone hand in hand with the emergence of populism uh, is a greater skepticism with regard to mainstream politics. Uh -huh. And uh, this is regarded as blatant action, uh, electioneering. I mean, uh, political parties everywhere. Um, uh, in the so-called so democracies, always loosen the purse strings before an election to create some kind of feel-good factor, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I don't think I don't think this is going to work. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to work because uh, there has been no costing with regard to these promises. Mm. Um, there has been no real timetable uh, with regard to their implementation. And of course, austerity has been along for so long uh, and has, bit, has bitten so deeply into Britain's social and economic fabric that people are saying, well, uh, you know, an extra 20,000 police officers mainly to deal with this uh, hysteria over knife crime, which Donald Trump has tried to exploit, by the way, yeah, of course. Uh, is... 20,000 police officers, but, you know, the conservatives have already cut something like 22,000 police officers. So it's not even going to make up the amount of the number of police officers who have been lost through austerity. So it's just a um, Well, I wanted to ask, we just have a couple minutes. Can there be a revote? Why not just take a revote? Can that be possible? People have been asking that over on this side of the Atlantic. Well, if there's a revote, it cannot be. You mean a re another referendum? Yeah, on the Brexit. Well, it cannot be on uh, the same terms as the previous referendum, which was uh, a nebulous uh, yes/no, up/down vote. Right. And this is for two reasons. One is the very nebulousness of that up/down vote created the chaos that we have today. 
And the other is there'll be a huge outcry on the part of people who voted leave in that referendum if basically the same question was reintroduced in another referendum. People, uh, these people will say, look, you are just trying to overturn, uh, in effect, you're just trying to take away our vote that we cast in that 2016 referendum. So if there's another referendum and it can't be ruled out, it will have to be uh, couched in a different way. And the most likely way, since we're running out of time, is for it to have the outline of some kind of arrangement with the EU uh, Ah. tacked on there Uh uh, to be voted on. I see. So are you for this spelled out or against this? Interesting. Uh, Yeah, it won't just be straight up, straight down. Yes, no. It'll be, are you for this? It may have two sub-questions. Are you in favor of uh, this? Uh, And does that include A? Does it include B? Does it only include A? Does it only include B? (laughs) Neither of these... Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it could happen. I wonder what will happen with Boris Johnson. Do you think he's going to come out looking like a winner? Crystal ball? Um, well, <laughs> since I have a deep aversion to it, I hope not. But politics is a very strange beast, so you never know. But I think things look increasingly not good for him as the days go by. That is so good to hear. We like a little optimism from time to time. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, uh, to read, if you're interested in reading more from uh, Professor Kenneth Surin, uh, I guess the best place is Counterpunch, or is there something else? Uh, well, Counterpunch is the best place. All right. Well, thank you so much, and let's, let's hope for the best. Well, thank you for having me on your show. We'll do it again. Thanks. Farage got his voting day, Boris Johnson on his way, referendum leave or remain, result will be close. Going to the polling station, what will happen to our nation? Nothing to gain, nothing to lose, campaign stooping low. Immigration time bomb, regulations gone wrong Grandad didn't fight for this sale of cabbage swing and miss Who has power, sovereignty, England's lost community Fracture of the Tory party's got cousins goodbye We didn't vote for Brexit Now the mob has spoken and our country's broken We didn't vote for Brexit Cameron is resigned while the market's declined Falling sterling labor week, subsidies and bailout creeks David Beckham markets reckon economic shock 350 million, 3A Moody's rating gone Foot sea free fall, rock of Gibraltar Clarkson is out hawking everybody Please stop talking, 48 to 52 Farage said that wouldn't do Double standard here Uncertainty and then fear Smug red face, scrape first place Trouble in our future We for Brexit Now the mob has spoken And our country's broken We didn't vote for Brexit Cameron is resigned while the market's declined Shadow cabinet cracked, Corbyn is under attack Sturgeon, head up high, maybe one last thing to try Boris gone, cricket match, a Corby's all he will catch George Osborne gone to hide, children facing Anglicide
Bloody folly, no plan, leave his blaming camera and holy rude, maybe though, no way is a no-go. Protests in London see racism and bigotry, country wrecker, sound bitter, reputation in the shitter. We now the mob has spoken and our country's broken. We 